Well, good morning, High Point. Good to be with you this morning on this, this Palm Sunday. Uh, today we are uh, nearing the end of a very long series that we have done in the book of John. In fact, after this week, we only have two weeks to go. And if you will recall, we were studying John's gospel last year, but we paused it going into the holiday season. And at that time, I told you that we would pick it back up in the new year, which we have, and that it would lead us into Easter, which it has also. But you may also recall in John's writings, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the event that kicked off Holy Week happened back in chapter 12. Well, we went over chapter 12 way back in October. <laughs> so on a normal Palm Sunday, I would probably describe to you what this day was like and to prepare you for what is to come, Easter Sunday. But as we've been studying John's gospel, really, I've been preparing you for Easter for literally months now. And so today we come to chapter 19, where we are going to look at John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And then of course, next week, we will celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So I'd like you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen and you can follow along with me. While you're doing that, this would be a really good time to give you some last minute, a last minute invitation. I say that because it was just decided midway through this last week, but we are going to have a Good Friday service and we're going to join together with several other churches in our community this week. Uh, the, the churches that we are joining with are the ones who participated in FaithWorks. Many of you may remember FaithWorks. It was something that started when your pastor and a bunch of pastors in the community got together and we were praying for our community. We've been praying that God would bring revival to Red Bluff, California. Well, that led into us helping people with homeless issues. It also led to us having some Sunday night services. Many of those services were held here at High Point, but we also had them at other locations. Of course, COVID came and it pretty much put a kibosh on, on everything. And we decided this week that we were gonna get back together again and have a joint church service. And so this Friday, uh, your pastor and several other pastors and leaders from these other churches will be sharing and teaching on the final seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. We will also be doing communion together, and I believe it will be a great time for all of us to join together with other believers in this community. It's going to be 5.30 this coming Friday at Bridgeway Community Church on David Avenue. That's Pastor Scott Camp's church. Many of you know Scott. I would love for you to come and be a part of that. Scott has agreed to do worship. It might just be Scott with his guitar, but that's okay. Uh, we're gonna have worship and they asked us if we would take care of that. And then of course, we will celebrate Easter Sunday on Sunday as we look at Christ's resurrection. So hopefully you've had time to find John chapter 19. We're gonna begin with verse 17, uh, go through verse 42. And this is where we left off last week. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city 
and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first two men who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But then they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, like the other gospel writers, John slows down a bit his narrative in order to emphasize the importance of what just happened on that first Good Friday. In fact, about a fourth of the material found in all of the Gospels is related to the cross, with the rest of the New Testament uh, continuing on in that emphasis. For example, the earliest preachings in the book of Acts focus most entirely upon 
the cross. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, the apostle Paul writes this, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Galatians 6.14, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, he tells us this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So today, continuing on in that main theme of the New Testament, I also want to focus on the cross in order to answer one vital question. How does the crucifixion help us believe that Jesus is who he says he is? In other words, let me rephrase it. How does the cross accomplish the goal of John's gospel? Do you remember what John's goal was? The purpose for him writing this gospel account? Remember, his was the last to be written some 50 years after this occurred. I shared it with you early on in this series, and it's found in John 20, 31, when he said this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So how does what happened on Golgotha help people to believe? How does this fateful encounter on the cross foster faith within you and I? Well, the first answer to that question is simple. The crucifixion was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. You see, the, the, uh, the Messiah's manner of death was something that had been foretold hundreds of years beforehand. This is what the apostle Paul, Peter was talking about in his sermon on Pentecost Sunday. Acts 22, 2, 22 and 23, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We can also see God's deliberate plan of foreknowledge clearly spelled out in the messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. For example, King David's penned prophetic words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that sounds like he was an eyewitness to the crucifixion. Centuries before it ever happened, he writes in details things that we now know occurred on the cross, things spelled out in the four gospel accounts. For example, Psalm 22, verse one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22, six through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. 
All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Psalm 22, 14 through 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. In today's text, from verse 31 and following, we, we see that the Jews did not want the bodies to be up on the cross during the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to have the legs broken of Jesus and the two men who was on either side of him in order to hasten their death. They did this so that they could no longer raise their bodies up with their legs, allowing them to breathe. And of course, eventually, that would mean that they would suffocate. Well, the soldiers did break the bones of the two men that were up there and being crucified with Jesus. But when they came to our Lord, they could clearly see that it was not necessary because he was already dead. This too was a fulfillment of prophecy found in Psalm 3420 that says he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. But just to be sure that Jesus was dead, one of the Roman soldiers thrust a spear through the side of our Lord. And when he did this, a mixture of blood and water flowed out, indicating that death had indeed already occurred. And this was but yet another fulfillment of ancient prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The book of Isaiah is full of very descriptive prophecies about the cross and Jesus. Isaiah 53, three through five, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds. Some translation says stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, seven through nine. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. And even the manner of Jesus' burial was also specifically foretold in this final verse, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
John tells us that Jesus' body was taken by a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph provided the kind of tomb to Jesus that, that only he could afford, a rich man could afford. Another man, rich man named, named Nicodemus, helped to cover the cost of the expensive spices that were required to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So he was indeed with the rich in his death. What I'm trying to explain to you this morning is that Jesus' crucifixion and the prophecies that were made about this hundreds of years before it happened, they matched to a T. Reading these prophetic words and then reading John's account of, of Jesus' crucifixion, well, it's like solving a, an ancient dilemma. It matches so precisely that, that anyone who reads these scriptures can only come away with one obvious conclusion. Jesus was and is indeed the long-awaited Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's another reason that John's account of the crucifixion helps us to believe. The crucifixion clearly illustrates the results of sin. You see, the cross was a horrible, a horrific way to die. And unlike the other gospel writers, John includes a detailed account of it to help us understand that sin is equally a horrible thing. I mean, if the Messiah was going to die in order to pay the penalty for the sin of all mankind, he would have to suffer an awful death. And he did. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph Klausner, a learned Jewish scholar, wrote this. Crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death which man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. The Romans who perfected this form of execution shared in his opinion. Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and horrifying deaths. Tacitus called it despicable. In fact, the Romans never allowed crucifixion to be practiced in Italy, only in the provinces that they oversaw. Plus, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to die by such a death. So to fully answer why they felt this way about crucifixion, let me as tactfully as possible remind you of what was done to our Lord on that Good Friday. And I'm basing all of this on the words of Dr. Truman Davis as written in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. He tells us that for Romans, crucifixion usually involved a long series of events. First came a horrible scourging where the skin of the victim was literally laid open. This was done by numerous lashes from a leather whip that had stone and glass and metal tied to the ends of the leather strips that was called a cat of nine tails. It was so incredibly painful that the victims, while they were being beaten, would pass out. But when they did, and I never read this until this week, the Romans threw salt water on their wounds to revive them so that they could continue to beat a conscious victim. 
And I think that helps you to understand why they called scourging halfway death. Then after being scourged, the victim was forced to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. He was paraded through the streets with a tablet announcing the charges against him, either hung around his neck or being carried by a person who was leading the procession. All the while, Jesus was driven along like a, like a cow, like cattle are driven by the soldier's whips. John tells us that Pilate ordered the tablet and we just read to read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When the Jewish leaders, leaders saw this, they, they were angered and they protested to Pilate they said, do not write king of the Jews, but instead write this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, meaning now this is what he gets for claiming to be the false Messiah. But true to his obstinate nature, and you know we talked about Pilate a couple weeks ago, he said, what I have written, I have written. Good on him. He kept the real title there. Well, when the gruesome profession, pr procession, excuse me, finally arrived to the site of the crucifixion, the prisoner was stripped of almost every bit of his clothing. Then the cross was placed on the ground and the victim was thrown backwards with his shoulders being placed upon the wood. And at this point, a soldier would drive a heavy square wrought iron nail through one wrist of the victim deep into the cross beam. Quickly, he would move to the other side and repeat that action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly in order to give them some flex and some movement. This wasn't done out of compassion. This was done to prolong the suffering. The left foot would then be pressed downward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail would be driven through the arch of both feet, leaving the knees flexed. The cross would then be lifted into place, but not usually too high. See, part of the cruelty of the crucifixion was to make it so that the criminal would experience all of this torment dangling just above the ground. Plus, at that particular height, the tormentors could more easily look up into his face and curse at him and spit on him. Well, as the victim slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, it would create more pain. They say it was an excruciating pain that would shoot along the fingers, up into the arms, and literally explode in the brain. And then, as he pushed upward to avoid that torment, this would place his full weight on the nail that was driven between both feet. And this caused searing agony of the rough metal tearing through the nerves between the bones in the arches of his feet. Then as the arms would fatigue, cramps would, would sweep through the muscles, knotting them up in deep pain, relentless throbbing pain. I get some horrible cramps in my legs sometimes after playing softball, and I can't imagine not being able to straighten my leg out when those cramps come. I mean, they are so painful sometimes, you literally wanna cry, and, I, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking your body is cramping up and you can't move it. It's horrific. And with these cramps came the inability to push themselves upward in order to breathe. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. And this caused carbon dioxide to build up in their, in their system. Hours and sometimes days of this limitless pain would occur. 
involving constant twisting and, and joint rendering cramps and intermittent partial asphyxiation and searing pain. All this while the tissue is torn on his already ripped apart, but lacerated back as he moves up and down on that rough wood crossbeam. But then another agony would arrive. It was crushing pain that occurred deep inside the chest as the pericardium began to fill slowly with serum and it would compress the heart. And at that point, it would almost be over as the loss of fluids would have reached critical levels. The compressed heart is now struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues while the tortured lungs are making a frantic effort just to gasp small little bits of air. Well, can I just say that this horrific form of execution shows us just how horrific our sin is, not just to a holy God, but to human beings in general. And this is something that we really, really need to grasp and understand this morning. Because here's the deal. More and more in our world, we have whitewashed sin. We tend to cover up the consequences of immorality. Plus, since our culture sees no distinction anymore between right and wrong, then the word sin or its defined action does not even exist in the minds and hearts of most people. And for those who do still call sin, sin, it's really a word that's not that big of a deal anymore. In fact, we usually laugh about it in jokes. Yeah, well, that was, a, I guess I'm gonna go sin. <laughs> Here's what I wanna say this morning. Drink yourself into a drunken stupor having an extramarital fling, embrace hedonism for a couple weeks and don't worry about it. Because after all, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? All you have to do is look at the plots of our television shows and any movies that you go and see and you have to admit that we clean up sin. We're not shocked by sin anymore. We're not appalled by the things that we see. We accept it as normal life. In essence, we nicify sin. But let me tell you something, there's nothing nice about sin. It hurts everyone involved. There is such a price to be paid when you and I sin. Sin pays us back with pain and suffering and death. And it's hard for us to see this sometimes because we live in a, in a deeply broken and a fallen world. But the fact is that sin is an ugly, filthy, thing. But if you want to see how bad sin really is, all you have to do is look at the cross. The reason that Jesus' death was so brutal is because on that dark day, he bore on his body the brutal consequences of the sin of all mankind. Every sin ever committed or ever will be committed since the beginning of time. And when you think about all the atrocities that have taken place since creation and all that have still yet to be committed, it is staggering to even think about it, the ugliness of all that sin. 
People, none of our sin stays in Vegas. You know where it ends up? It ends up on the cross. All of the brutality, all of the lies, all of the the lust and the selfishness, all of the gossip, all of the greed, all of the pride, all of the theft, all of the murders and the rapes and all of the abuse, it was all poured out upon Jesus on that day. That's why Jesus didn't come in our day to die of a lethal injection. He died an ugly death. And the reason for that is because our sin is an ugly thing. And John's account, I believe, helps us to understand this and to believe. It convicts us of our sin. And it helps us to see how far we are from our holy God standard. And it clearly shows us how desperately we are in need of forgiveness and cleansing. Well, here's the third way John's account of the crucifixion helps us helps to achieve the purpose of his gospel. The crucifixion helps us to see how much God loves us. The the, the cross shows us the extent to which our heavenly father would go in order to get us back. St. Paul's Cathedral in London has a life-size marble statue of Jesus writhing in anguish on the cross. And the inscription below the statue declares this, this is how God loved the world. And that that inscription, when you think about it, is spot on. The cross is the the clearest revelation of God's love. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like the other gospel writers, John here is trying to help us to see that Jesus died the way that he died to show us the extent of which God's love would go. Because if Jesus had had refused the cross, then that means there would have been a limit to the love of God. But he didn't refuse. He hung on that cross, which means there is no limit. Jesus died for all of us because God loves all of us. Yes, even the person you don't love, Jesus loves. Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Author McAllister McGrath shares the following story to help illustrate how the cross proves that God loves us. He writes, an aunt of mine died some time ago, having lived to be 80 or so. She had never married. During the course of clearing out her possessions, we came across a battered old photograph of a young man. It turned out my aunt had fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl. It had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else and kept a photograph of the man she had loved for the remainder of her life. Why? Partly to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. As she has grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that at one point in her life. She really had meant something to someone. That someone had once cared for her and regarded her as his everything. It could all have seemed a dream, an illusion, something she had invented in her, in, in her old age to console her in her declining years. But the photograph proved otherwise. It reminded her that it had not been invented. She really loved someone once, and she was loved in return. The photograph was her sole link to a world 
in which she had been valued. And when you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, that cross to you and I is very much like that photograph was to the woman who passed away. We can look at the cross and, and we can be assured that something that seems too good to be true, something that some people might say that we invented really did happen. God really does love us. That's why he sent his son. He knew that the cross was the only way that he could pay for our sin. It was the only way to make it possible for us to come home to him. And that leads me to the fourth way John's account of the crucifixion helps to achieve the purpose of his gospel. The crucifixion shows us how Jesus paid for our sin. You see, Jesus did not simply die. Get this in your head. He died for us. He died for you. It was personal. You were on his mind when he hung on that cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. It was our sins that Jesus bore on that cross. That horrible day when the innocent, sinless son of God hung up there on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth. He took upon himself the sin of all mankind. And he paid it all. He paid for our sin by the shedding of his precious blood. In fact, do you remember Jesus' last words? He says, it is finished. Those three words are translated from the Greek word, tetelestai. Back then it was a banking term, which meant paid in full. So when Jesus cried tetelestai, he was saying that the account for mankind had been settled. The debt for man's sin had been wiped out. The ransom payment for the sin of all mankind had been paid in full. And please note something here. Jesus did not cry, I am finished. He cried out, it is finished. It was not a cry of failure. It was a cry of victory. It was a cry of completion. With his precious blood, Jesus paid for it all. Here's the fifth way John's account of the crucifixion helps to achieve the purpose of John's gospel. The way that Jesus died on the cross was an invitation to us. He hung on that cross on the hill called Golgotha as an invita invitation for mankind to return to God, to reconcile with God the Father, through the cross, God was saying, as he did through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 118, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And in Revelation 3.20, Jesus said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Jesus died the way that he did as an invitation for all mankind 
to finally live, to live the way God intended us to live. Gypsy Smith was an outstanding evangelist from another age, and he once expressed this truth with these following words, I am not afraid of the cross. I know that men used to come there to die, but since Jesus died, they come there to live. And powerful. 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, the perfect son of God died a painful and shameful death on that cross for all mankind. And when he cried, it is finished, he was announcing a new highway that leads into the presence of Almighty God. And he invites you to enter that today. Scott, would you guys come forward and help me close this? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. I want to end this service today by singing another song. It's a song called Worthy is the Lamb. And when we sing this together, I want you to really think about the words that you're singing. It says, thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame and love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. Washed me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know is your forgiveness and embrace. Worthy is the lamb seated on the throne. We crown you now with many crowns. You reign victorious, high and lifted up. Jesus, son of God, the darling of heaven, crucified. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. If you have been saved by what Christ did on the cross, if you've asked to receive his amazing grace and forgiveness, then when you sing this song this morning, sing it with appreciation. Sing it with thanksgiving in your heart. Take a few minutes to rejoice in what Christ did for you. If you're here today or watching online and you've never received salvation, I want you to feel free to come to this altar today. Those of you who are watching online, all you need to do is pray a simple prayer. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then it continues, it says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and that you are saved. All you have to do is pray a simple prayer, acknowledging Jesus is Lord, confessing that in a prayer and asking him to come into your heart forgive you of your sin wouldn't it be nice for maybe the first time in your life to go into Easter having experienced Jesus and not just hearing that story once again and walking out of here and not being changed wouldn't it be nice to have a fresh start to become as the Bible says a new creation in Christ that's what Jesus does he gives us a clean slate he provides us with a, with a fresh canvas in which to start painting our life upon. He forgives us of our sin. 
He forgives us of, of all of our mistakes. He casts our sin as far away, the Bible says, as the East is from the West. And it also says never to be remembered. I heard somebody once say that your, Jesus has amnesia when it comes to your sin. Because once he's forgiven you of it, he forgets about it. And you need to forget about it too. You need to know that you've been cleansed and you're a new creation. If you'd like to have a fresh start this morning, as we sing this song, I want you to feel free to come down to this altar. Invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Of course, this altar is open to anyone and for any reason. If you're sick, the Bible tells us that he bore our sicknesses on that cross with him as well, that by his stripes we are healed. If you need healing today of any, any nature, you won't find it anywhere but the cross. Come down here to this altar and receive a healing touch of God. Maybe you wanna to come to this altar today to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for being so faithful to me. Maybe you've become overwhelmed at the reality of exactly what Jesus did for you this morning as we've talked about the details of his crucifixion. He set you free, and in that freedom, you have found new life, and that's worth praising him over. It's okay to come to this altar, not with a need, but just with a prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe you've got something going on in your life, a relational issue, a financial issue. Maybe you have an issue at work and you're worried and you need help. Why not come to this altar and lay it at the foot of the cross? As we sing this song together, feel free to come to this altar and meet with the Lord.
ever been to a Pentecostal church what you just heard was a message in tongues the Bible says that when someone speaks in tongues in a public setting like this if they just spoke the tongues you wouldn't know what was said but then there's an interpretation that follows so we understand and what is so awesome about a message in tongues is I've never ever known it not to tie in with what we have been talking about and it's as though and it is a message from God for us at this moment in time. And if you didn't get the hint through the message that Jesus loves you and that he died this horrific death so that he could make you one of his own, then you just heard from God. And my friend, if you have not accepted the Lord through all of this, then you're gonna be in my prayers because you've been told numerous times today, I truly believe the time is short. The world's come unhinged. I don't get it. I don't get what's going on, but I don't let it worry me too much because I know who's in control. And, and all these things have been predicted and they're all happening. But if you're running around casually, pretending like you've got forever, but to make a decision about Jesus, I would say you're making a grave error. I'm not, I don't try to scare people into faith in God. It's a beautiful thing. But if you were like me before I turned my heart over to God, I could be a pretty stubborn person. And I, can, I, I thought that I knew what was right. And I thought I had everything under control. And right about that time, my life imploded and I realized I had no control whatsoever. And it wasn't until I found Jesus that he made something out of me. And that's what my desire is for all of you. And not just those of you in this church, but for everyone in our community. The time's short. Let's be evangelists. Let's, let's share, our goodness, share God's goodness with others. 
let's bring them in so that they can receive forgiveness of sin and they can have the assurance of eternal life in God's presence. I wanna thank you for being here today. You could have gone to the rodeo, but you chose to come here. So we had rodeo up in this place today. Now you can go to the rodeo. I don't care what you do now, but you can go to the rodeo now, but thank you for not going this morning. I almost wore a cowboy hat in honor of it, but I thought, no, I'm not gonna do that. I don't, I don't wear a football helmet at Super Bowl, so why should I wear a cowboy hat at rodeo? You know, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. <clears throat> what a beautiful day you've given us. And as we've talked about a really horrible event, it was truly horrible for you, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened for us because without the cross, we would have nothing. Thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus, for fulfilling your mission and taking abuse that no one should ever have to take, especially someone who is perfectly innocent. But you did it and you bore our hideous sin and you cleansed us with the shedding of your blood and we thank you for that. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that we would, we would shine in a dark world the love of Christ because of knowing exactly what you've done for us. That we would not sit on our hands and keep our mouths shut because the time is short and we need to tell others about you. So Father, I pray for a, a God-ordained moment this week with everyone in this place. Have someone cross their path and open that door so that they can share your goodness with them and invite them to come with them on Easter Sunday. And Father, I pray for next week. I know we will have a lot of new faces here. We will have a lot of visitors, visitors and I pray even now you would be preparing hearts to receive the message of your resurrection and that we would see a bountiful uh, amount of souls that would come to know you. That's not a bad prayer to pray. That's a prayer that could be achieved. And Father, I just pray that all of us would pray that this week that we would see something next Sunday that would literally astound us. And if we come praying that way, and if we come with anticipation, that's exactly what will happen, God. So prepare our hearts, Lord, first for next Sunday, but prepare us to bring others along with us so that they can hear about your goodness. I ask that between now and next week, you keep us safe, keep us safe from accidents, keep us safe from sickness and disease so that we can gather together as a church family and rejoice at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.